Hey everybody, welcome to Literary Disco on Lit Hub Radio, episode 135, Sabrina. Today we read and discuss the first graphic novel to be long-listed for the Booker Prize. Sabrina by Nick Dernasso follows a group of characters associated with a murder victim named Sabrina. And, making this a very timely piece, the story focuses less on the facts of the murder and more on the conspiracy theories and false information that spreads throughout the news cycle. This is Literary Disco, the last book club you'll ever need. We're Todd, Julia, and Ryder, three old friends who love to read, debate, and sometimes even agree. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, are novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Hello. Hey, Mr. Strong. How you doing? I'm good. I'm um, gearing up for the holidays. It feels like it should already be over, but it's just starting. Uh, yes. I, uh, I've been gearing up for the holidays by doing something very specific. You guys want to know what it is? Of course. Yes, please. I've been laying in bed watching Springsteen on Broadway all day long. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? I have watched all two and a half hours of Springsteen on Broadway five times. Yeah. Five times. Wow. I, I was right to text you when I was watching it. Yes. I'm like in the middle of watching it. I'm like, Todd needs to see this. Todd needs to see this. <laughs> I, I had been uh, away for 10 days teaching at my MFA residency, and I'd literally been home for like 90 minutes when you texted me, and I was like, well, I should probably stop talking to my wife for the first time in 10 days and cry while yeah. Bruce and Patty sing Brilliant Disguise. Aww. Oh, my God. It's it's so good. I've seen him in it concert so I, mean, I cried times. within the first song. He's the best. He, he is the best. Does, so when you've seen him like in a big show, Julia, does he do these sort of intimate stories, or is that just a function of the Broadway show? Um, I haven't seen the special, so I can't um, speak. It's, I'm pretty sure it's a function of the yeah. his, his shows are usually big stadium Huge. shows. Huge. Except for like when he tours, he toured for Ghost of Tom Joad in the 90s, and it was just him and his guitar, and he talked a lot. And then he did basically this, our version of this for VH1 Storytellers, which is right, wonderful. right. I loved VH1 Storytellers. All those episodes, like that Tom Waits did an episode. It's incredible. And th this is like, for me, this is just the dream concert. You know, mm -hmm. like I, as such a, a lyrics obsessed person in the singer songwriter tradition, I love, you know, when a songwriter is willing to talk about why they wrote a song and, um, and to introduce it and, and to make, make you reconsider the lyrics in light of sort of, you know, the background behind it or, and in this case, like he's doing like performance poetry half the time. It's like half storytelling, half like performance poetry and right. then his songs. And when he gets to the song, he set it up so perfectly that it just rips your heart out when you realize how much thought and emotion went into each one of these things that he's written that you, that you may have already known, you know, right. the, the song that you already liked. And now you just like, it has so much more meaning and background to it. it and even more alive. There are parts where he's, I mean, it, it, he's clearly reading from a teleprompter, and it's stuff that he wrote originally in um, in his biography that mm. came out, or his autobiography, rather, that came out um, that. a couple years ago. Oh, I did. It was a great book. Actually, it's, it's, a, it's a great book as a fan, but then it's also a great book because you can read it, and if you're a professional writer, you can be like, well, you know, the one thing I got on Bruce Springsteen... I'm a little bit better of a prose writer. <laughs> How many celebrity like, memoirs so have you read that aren't that way? Come on. Yeah, but, but you what? Here's here. I'm, I'm going to give him credit. His stage presence is unmatched. It's ridiculous. Yes. Like it is better than. But I mean, it, but even more. Like I knew he could perform as far right. as like 
with him and a guitar, but him talking in front of this audience is at once so intimate and relaxed and in control and still performative. It's like an impossible combination. It's, it, he's an incredible presence. It's, I wouldn't call it acting ability, but there's something to his presence that is profound. Yeah. And, oh yeah. And I, I haven't seen, like when I watch other, uh, you know, performers do something like a one man show like this. It just doesn't quite, but this feels so honest. Yeah. Like, it feels really intimate because, and the way it's shot, I, I saw someone complaining about how it was shot sort of like a stand up comedy routine, but I actually kind of like that because it gets so close to his face, which is not something that you really see. You know, you see him as full body, you see him playing guitar in shows or concert videos or whatever, but to see like, the crags in his face or to see his eyes well up when he's telling a story really adds to the authenticity of the stories. But then of course, you know, he says something really amazing um, during the course of the show, which is that he wrote racing in the streets, for instance, before he knew how to drive a car. And he spent his entire career talking about the factory worker and he's never stepped foot inside of a factory. Um, and, you know, he's, he's talking about... Front. He says, yeah. basically, I'm a con. That's yeah. how he starts the show. It's like, I'm a showman. This has all been, you know... This is I all my act, yeah. Something. Yeah, this is all an act. It's a magic trick, is what he says. Yeah. So right. And he said it before in his lyrics. Like, there's a... I think it's in uh, Better Days. He says, a rich man wearing a poor man's shirt. And it's true, you know? Like, the guy's worth a trillion dollars, and he walks around and beat, beat up denim shirts or whatever. But... I think what's remarkable about the show and about the stories that he tells is that he doesn't need to have been a factory worker to absorb the pain and the malaise of a dying factory town, to be able to look at his father and see his father's depression and then whittle that down to a character in a song. I mean, that's what we all do as, as writers, mm -hmm. you know, like we, we take a look at society or whatever, and we, we turn it into some sort of um, digestible bit of entertainment. But there's this one moment, I mean, there's a lot of them, but there's this one moment when he tells the story of his father coming to see him and uh, they sit down for morning beers, as uh, Bruce says, because he's that kind of guy. And his dad says to him, you've been really good to us. And Bruce admits, I, I had been really good to them. And then his father says, but I wasn't very good to you. Mm. And it's just like, hey, you know what? I'm going to go outside and I'm going to cry until I throw up. And then, <laughs> then, I'll, then I'll be back for you to sing that song. The way he the way he reworks the songs too is really incredible. Like each one, he slows them down, he changes them up on piano, mm -hmm. guitar, and like Thunder Road. Oh, so good! You know, he he does Thunder Road, which he's 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 been doing like a slow acoustic version of this for years. But at the end of this version, he turns it into a lullaby. Yeah, mm -hmm. and like he starts going la, la and he starts mm -hmm. singing the melody with these la la la's, and you realize it's like this sad because he he sets it up by talking about how. You know, the desire to get out of his hometown was always kind of a joke. It's like, because you always have to go back. And, <laughs> and he lives 10 minutes from his yeah. hometown. <laughs> right. And he's like, so, you know, he's talking about this sort of contradiction of like this young man who write, writing these songs about like getting the hell out of, you know, Jersey. And then he becomes Mr. Jersey. And I, it's it's a fascinating dynamic. So the the when you're watching this, what, 65, 70-year-old man sing this song, this so clearly a 20-year-old song. And, uh, you know, a 20 year old person song and then turn it into a lullaby, like this sad, like bygone thing. Mm -hmm. Oh, it just ruins my I'm going to watch so it good. immediately after this. Woohoo. You really should. And it's, it's two and a half hours long. So 
Like there's there's a time investment that you have to make as well. And although the songs sort of go linearly through his career, he dips and dabs, you know, Born in the USA comes at a strange time. But for me, the absolute highlight is him singing um, Brilliant Disguise with uh, his wife, Patty, because that's a song that he wrote um, essentially when he was cheating on his first wife, Julian Phillips, with Patty. Um, yeah, which is gross. But then... He has talked over the years, and he talks about it in um, in the movie as well, about how a song's meanings change mm. as the person who sings it changes as well. Mm. Um, and I found that to be very, very powerful. Mm. Anyway, it's totally worth two and a half hours, and um, and it's probably the, the best movie. Of the yeah, year. It might, it might be the best movie of the year. It might be the best novel Seriously, of the year. I think I haven't seen Roma yet, which I hear is unbelievable, but. Um, I, you know, Netflix is really going big this year and I yeah. this could have been released in theaters, uh, easily and it's, yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah. It's very um, cool. Very right. cool. Let's, uh, let's move on to actual books. Show. Hey, I wish you did hey, that. Uh, yeah. All right. So the graphic novel Sabrina was published in May of 2018 to rave reviews. Um, the title character Sabrina is a, is a woman who goes missing and the book in instead centers on three characters from her life. Sabrina's sister, Sandra, her boyfriend, Teddy, and then Teddy's childhood friend, Calvin, who's an airman going through a divorce, um, and he lets Teddy stay at his house. Uh, fairly early on in the story, a video of Sabrina being murdered is released to the public by her killer, and, um, and then her killer's body is found. So the news cycle goes crazy, and eventually theories begin to emerge that the whole murder was staged and that our main characters are crisis actors perpetuating a lie on the American people. Um, I think that's pretty much... Great summary. Yeah. yeah. So what, that's uh, the book. what did you guys think? Julia, you want to go first? Sure. Um, I picked this book randomly off a list because um, it's been so long since we've read a graphic novel. And when I, I went into it so cold, I was just like, okay, this is supposed to be good. Page one, uh, which is... Just the best way to start any book or movie or, in this case, piece of art. Um, and I was just so riveted by how much, how many of these panels were about silence. And mm -hmm. especially the boyfriend, what was this? It's been a while. What's the boyfriend's Teddy, name again? Teddy. Okay. Teddy's, you know, sitting alone in a room in a home that isn't his not knowing what to do with himself and deciding to listen to this conspiracy theory radio and all this stuff. And how little of this novel is spoken words or even thoughts of the characters and how much of it is just zoomed in on them. So isolated. Um, so I loved it. Of course. I think it's like, obviously great i don't know what a complaint about this could be other than maybe people might think it's boring but instead i found it like incredibly depressing and profound <laughs> and a big thinker because these thoughts like these like are they crisis actors you know they just sort of hang in the air and of course you see these characters pain and you know that that's not real in the you know world in the novel but it's just like these words are said they're so painful and they just are allowed to like sit there, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, um, I, I, it might be the best book I've read all year. Uh, I, I we did our best books already. Um, mm. and 
I think I mentioned this one on here, but it has really stuck with me more than anything. I've gone back and looked at it over and over again. I, I have it on my, um, on my Kindle, which does this really cool cinematic thing where it will expand into the full page. It does, it does cinematic. I don't know what it's called. It's some sort of thing I paid a dollar extra for, but it does sort of cinematic representations of, of individual panels, um, which makes it an even more profound read. But it touches on the isolation, desperation, malaise, and fear that the American um, experience has become. And also the interconnectivity that media has allowed that makes conspiracy and paranoia run absolutely rampant. Um, in, you know, in the absence of answers for something that are definitive, Chaos and conspiracy is always going to be the thing that a certain fringe part of society holds on to. And in Sabrina, this author, who is also an amazing artist, captures that with silence and then fills the page with these conspiracy theory talk radio shows in such an amazing way. I, I just couldn't stop reading it. I can't stop thinking about it. And it, it fucks you up because there's a certain point in this book at which you begin to believe the conspiracy because because people are weird, right? People are obsessive compulsive about things. And there's a moment where you think, oh my God, I think in fact that the airman, uh, what's his name? Uh, Calvin. Calvin, he might just be a conspiracy theorist himself because he's hoarding food and stuff. Um, but everyone's got weird things about them. I, I, it's amazing. Also, the most many of the characters are depicted laying in their underpants in bed. Yeah. And I just want to give a shout out to the realistic representation of the male body. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say the realistic representation of lying around in your underpants in bed. Like, though that too, it's a huge part of the book. <laughs> it's a huge part of my life. Like, if I, you know, how um, your phone now tracks how much screen time you have. I would oh, like no, to have. Yeah. A, I'd like to have an app that tracks how much time does Todd spend in his underwear in bed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I think that that's so that's like probably that's such an important part point of the um part of the art it really um it focuses on the body like yeah. it's about these people being real and having boring lives banal mm -hmm. lives and being naked and being kind of unattractively naked right. <laughs> and just um, depressed and sitting on couches. Like there's one sequence where Calvin says, don't make fun of me and comes out in a slanket or a, <laughs> a, you know? a snuggy. Like, yes. A snuggy. That's what it's called. Right. There, the slanket was the uh, more generic version. That I get. Uh, the off brand <laughs> snuggy. Yes. Because there was, there was one Christmas where the snuggies came out and uh, my in-laws got it for all of us. So we all like sat around on our, our slankets or snuggies. <laughs> Um, so I still have one, but you know, I think that that's the, like the quintessential, like to be in the presence of another human being wearing a Snuggie, uh, is like something you don't plan on, you know, and you especially don't plan on reading that in a comic book, right? Like that's like the, the antithesis of comic books. Comic books are supposed to take visual, exciting violence, if anything, sex, maybe, and supposed to like spice up real life and make it the most interesting read you can. And this book goes the exact opposite. And it starts with blank faces, people getting coffee, people carrying their cats from room to room, right. people staring out of windows, people listening to a radio show. There are like 
20 pages of a radio, just a, just a shot close up of a radio right. and a guy naked listening to it. Like that is anti comic book writing. Yeah. And it is so profound because what, you know, so much of the message of this, this book is human being like these people have lives. These people have bodies. They have lives. They have lovers. They have thoughts. They have friends. They have childhood friends. They have shitty jobs. And if you, t- if you take that away from them, if you remove their like personhood and their physical reality, you could, it's so easy to say, oh, they're, they're, they're crisis actors or, oh, they were mm-hmm. faking it on that quote or, oh, they, they don't really, they're manipulating, they're lying. And it's like, we're, we've all, as a culture, we, we're so easy to dismiss other human beings. I mean, like, I know I do it, right? Like, onto the level of Trump voters, right? Like, it's so easy for me to just think of your average Trump voter as somebody that I don't understand, who I have like a couple of images in my head and it's out there. And I don't really think about them as like people with real lives living their everyday experience and their shitty jobs. And like, this book is such a little empathy bomb to say like, who, whichever side of, you know, any situation, whether it's a murder um, that gets politicized in this case and, um, or just something you're hearing about on the radio, like, there's a human being on the other side of that experience. There's a yeah. person that's, that's having to live that. And that like message, I haven't, I haven't felt that more profound in years than I did from this book. And I, and I think it's like such an important message for our time. Well, yeah. there's this one scene that's like, I don't want to say climactic, but it's, it's a lot of the action centers around it where um, Calvin throughout the book is like kind of avoiding dealing with everything, which anyone fucking would, you know, like his wife who hates him, his friend who's freaking out at his house and whether or not to take this like promotion at work. And he's just like, you feel his stress through the novel. And then he's like cornered in his own driveway and asked to give a statement. And he just sort of says something that sounds kind of right. And is just trying to get out of it. And then that statement that he gives in five seconds is what's picked apart. Right. Um, because right. So he, um, he says the dead girl. So Sabrina is the name of the murdered young woman and her sister's name is Sarah. And so he's being interviewed, you know, essentially ambushed on the street and he calls Sabrina, Sarah. And that essentially opens up the door to the wackadoodles of the world saying, you see that, you know, there's a a glitch in the matrix. He called her Sarah instead of Sabrina. So obviously She's not dead, or Sarah's really hurt. Like, it just, every single bizarre, stupid conspiracy theory is taken from, you know, this guy who didn't know these people. That's the important thing. He doesn't know these people saying the wrong name. Um, but he's in a military outfit, and, he's, and that ties right. into the whole mm-hmm. conspiracy theory that it's a government thing. Right. So yeah, it's a, and, so Calvin himself works in a bunker in the in um, the built in the the mountain range in North Dakota, right where NORAD is. Is that where it is, North Dakota? Mm-hmm. Um, and so he works, you know, underground in a new. Nuclear... It's a shitty office job. Yeah, it just it, happens that he wears camo every day. He wears camo every day, and he's <laughs> it's a shitty office job. And every single day, also, he has to fill out a mental health report, which is fascinating. Um, yes. But he has just the kind of mundane job that if you were a conspiracy theorist and you found out that X person works in the you know underground bunker for NORAD doing this and this and this, you'd think, oh, that's clearly a CIA agent who's in charge of running all the world's conspiracies. If only he had a Jewish last name, he'd really be set. <laughs> um, you know, I think the, the, the smartest part about this book, too, is that the 
like the, the parallels are obvious to like Parkland mm-hmm. um, theories, the conspiracy theories that started around Parkland, and and then the the radio host oh, man. speaks is so mm-hmm. clearly based on like an Alex Jones like conspiracy figure. But what's so smart about this book is that it's not actually around like a guns rights issue right. or a liberal versus conservative. Like you could be a, a conservative and read this book and 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 agree with the message just as as easily. You know, it's mm-hmm. not. He, he, he intentionally chose a sort of neutral murder that is kind of random and is horrifying, but ultimately meaningless. Um, it's not like a men's rights activist or right. a guns rights activist or, you know, it's just a sort of crazy person that does this murder. And it's trying, it's that vacuum of meaning that gets filled by a radio host, by, a, you know, all these different figures. And he's so careful in the writing to avoid specifically saying like the radio host never says like, this is a liberal conspiracy. This is what the left wing, he says something. He just says, they, you know, this is what they don't want you to have. And it's like just generic enough that you could see the, the uh, appeal almost on any side of the spectrum. You know, when, when you just want an enemy and you want truth so bad and you want to understand the media, when you, when you want to understand what's happening, you know, you're hearing about or these videos you see online and you want to be critical of them you're going to latch on to a, you know, somebody who rants and raves very well. Well, let, here's a little, just a little segment. This is from about the middle of the book where um, Terry, the, the boyfriend of the dead girl, is really starting to Teddy. listen. Teddy, I'm sorry. Is starting to listen to this guy every single night. Um, and this is a, it's a, it's a beautifully drawn um, page as well. Um, but I'll just read it, just a little bit of, of the, the radio announcer's dialogue. He says... There's been an overwhelmingly positive response to last night's show and the email I have here. Your support is truly appreciated. It's wonderful to see the lines of communication opening. I can feel this thing beginning to coalesce. No longer are we shut up in our homes, isolated and frightened. Take one lonely person clacking away at a keyboard, powerless. Put them all together and you have a force to be reckoned with that can move mountains. I don't think I have some divine right to be spokesperson. I float some ideas, comment on the world as I see it. And it seems to resonate with some of you. Our numbers go up with each broadcast. Am I a typical American? More to the point, am I a typical human being? I would hope so. I have an unconditional love for my wife and girls, an almost primal need to protect them. I hold doors open for people and tip 20%. I would never be rude or condescending to anyone in the service industry trying to support a family on minimum wage. I don't like these bullies running around treating decent people like dispensable cogs. These guys take a waiter or a school teacher and stand on their necks until they're nearly suffocated. And he goes on like this with the sort of like, yeah, like these, that, that's a good point of view to have. Like, right. It's don't us be, versus them. Us yeah. versus yeah. them. Yeah. And then he goes from that to a slowly devolving vast paranoia about them being, you know, a vast government conspiracy, essentially, that involves the murder of Sabrina. Um, and there's a point at which the radio host essentially says, you know, they're coming for us tomorrow. This is our last broadcast, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, But as happens with these things, like when I was a kid, I used to listen to Art Bell all the time. And he was always like, he wasn't as a a conspiracy theorist. He's a UFO guy. Yeah. Yeah. He was like a lizard people guy. And, you know, he'd come through on the AM radio, whatever. And it would always be like, the black helicopters will be coming to get me tomorrow. This is probably our last show. And then, of course, he'd be on the next uh-huh. night because 
He was just a guy with a radio show. Um, <laughs> but it, before at that point, you know, I was like 11 when I was listening to Art Bell. But now these people are at the front and center of American po- geopolitical life. They are the Alex mm-hmm. Joneses. And so when they say that they're coming Tucker for us Carlson. tomorrow, of oh, fuck Tucker Carlson. I, I, Tucker Carlson uh, shits. Uh, let's get, let's get it. <laughs> Tucker Carlson <laughs> shits standing up. I just up. wanted to throw that out there. <laughs> I, Alex Jones is like a couple months ago. Now we're on to regular oh God. news people. Tucker, Carl- oh, Tucker Carlson <laughs> used to be a normal person. I don't know what but happened it's, to This Tucker is the Carlson. thing, though. Exactly what you just read in that. It's about ratings, right? right. It's about if you're just trying to uh, get eyeballs on your television show or ears to your radio show, the more crazy extremist stuff you say, you're going to get a bigger response and you're going to have to keep playing into that to keep that, you know, alive. It's, it's, Mm. it's a symptom of, you know, the reality is we live in an information age where paranoia is the normal state of things. Like we all are paranoid. That's like paranoia is no longer a private, um, feeling that doesn't make sense with the world paranoia is the way we make sense of the world we have to make connections <laughs> i knew people you know were following I mean? me like, i knew it <laughs> but, no because paranoia yeah. actually makes sense like you have a computer you have a facebook account right so is it paranoid to think that advertisers know what you click on no that's actually just the way the world is working these <laughs> right. days because they are connecting all of our lines of communication and so we're in a position now where paranoia suddenly does make sense and then that's going to be co-opted by entertainers and sham you know uh con men like our president like they're gonna tap into whatever paranoia they can that gives them power and they'll say whatever it takes to just get those masses on their side and it's like holy shit how do we break through this because unfortunately so much of you know uh, you could just as easily on the liberal side of things respond by tapping into paranoia there and it's dangerous like how do we get back to where we can really understand each other in our you know snuggies on the <laughs> and this is a great work of art to do that like i want to wrap this book up and give it to everybody for christmas just be like, yeah Please. here mom here's a, be very depressed here's a graphic novel mom about a murder and a murder, slanket yeah. <laughs> i tell you what though, those slankets are comfortable <laughs> it's a robe backwards <laughs> everyone should wear them um, the other thing that Julia brought up earlier, um, is the, the spareness of the actual pages themselves. There's so many pages that are just a car driving down a street or a person staring into, um, a blank nothingness. And it might at first feel like, oh, this is a nihilistic view of the world, but it's actually just a really, um, it's a really sort of stunning portrayal of thought and depression um, but also of yeah. winter. There's a, there's a real <laughs> sense of winter to all of this. You know what I mean? Yep. The artwork is so um, incredible too, because the the faces are almost um, either so simple, they're so blank, um, and when the shots get farther away from, they actually almost disappear. Mm-hmm. So that people's when you ever whenever you have a, a medium shot, like basically knee, shoulders to knees or wider, they don't even have eyeballs anymore. You just or even sometimes a nose. And it has this interesting, like, reducing effect. The farther you get away from the characters, the less human they seem. And so when a close-up mm-hmm. comes and you're looking right into their face, you know, it, it's, it's the, the, the visual storytelling is saying, get closer to people. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? It's saying mm-hmm. the farther you get away from people, you're losing who they actually are. And you're able to reduce them to generic 
like stick figures and when you have to get closer to them. So the, the, the visual storytelling makes you desire to get closer to the characters, which is a really fascinating move. Uh-huh. And everybody has terrible hair. <laughs> I was I, I was thinking about this actually in comparison to um uh my friend Dahmer, um, which is drawn in such a completely like 180 degrees opposite effect. You know, there's the tiniest details are rendered in my friend Dahmer. You're up close to everybody's faces. Um, you know, you can see the lines in the woodwork in my friend Dahmer. And and both of them are dealing with um you know, a lot of confusion and paranoia and, and loss and that sort of thing. Um, one, obviously, is about teenagers. This is about people that are, you know, in their 30s or whatever. Um, but in the same way, it is about the symptoms of rural or small town America that create the, um, the idea that people, that your next door neighbor could be the, the you know, a right. serial killer. or you Isolation. Know, yeah. Right. Which I find uh, true uh, because I've had neighbors on my streets who have been murderers, um, but also uh, just a, you know a really sort of um, I don't know, it, it, it is like a backlash to this idea of suburbia being safe and the or that the wilderness is safe and suburbia is where the the maniacs are. Maniacs are everywhere. They're everywhere. You're not safe anywhere. That's why you should be paranoid. Um, and there's also well, a lot of guns in this. Go ahead, Julia. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. There, no, no, no. You're good. Um, there are a lot of guns in this. I feel like this book is so much about depression yeah. and anxiety. And one thing that we haven't talked about yet, art-wise, is the color and how mm-hmm. it, it is at times monochromatic. Yeah. Not black and white, but just like tones of brown or gray. Um, and it's like, you get the sense that these characters, especially the boyfriend, who's just kind of living through this grief, that he's not a part of any story. Like he's not on a trajectory. He's just fucking living through this brown gray area in this depressing house with his radio on. Like he's not trying to do anything. He does actually end up having a small arc, but he's just existing. And I think that's what is different about this book than my friend Dahmer is that it's not leading towards anything, you know? Mm-hmm. It's not leading towards any climax. It's just like, yes, I am living through this experience of everyone thinking that we're crisis actors, but I'm so depressed and having to deal with my grief that I can't, like, react to that in any way. I'm just sort of absorbing it all. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then the also- reader is absorbing it. Yeah, go on. I, that's also reflected, like, what you're describing is reflected perfectly in the way the graphic novel um, uses like primary sources within it. So like Calvin will be pick up a book and there'll be a children's book and he'll read it. And then the next two pages will be what he's looking at in the children's book. And they're like so colorful, Mm -hmm. just crowded. (laughs) And there's like character and it's a completely different art style and it blows your mind because you've been like sort of gotten used to this, um, bland, flat, colorless look that you've been reading throughout the book. And in the same way, the, the book um, 
jumps in on screenshots of people's computers or emails mm-hmm. and they're really detailed and well-written and you can sort of like lose yourself and, and the, you realize that like these people's lives exist so much in screens too. And, um, mm-hmm. and that's a lot about what this is about, right? Like all the different ways we seek connectivity with other people often is not another human face. It's a, it's a, a, a paranoid email that somebody's sending you or a death threat that somebody's sending you through, you know, the internet. Um, it reminded me, it's, it's, have you guys seen the movie Searching that came out earlier this year? No. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. It's gotten a lot of rave reviews and it's, it's a, it's similar in that there's a mystery and it's all, but the, it's a movie. The whole thing is told through a computer screen. Huh. So the movie opens on a computer screen and it's John Cho, who's an incredible actor. And it's mostly him sitting at this computer screen, FaceTiming, um, his daughter goes missing. And it's just him. Oh, yeah, yeah. But the whole movie is like basically found footage from a computer screen. Um, And I was pretty disappointed in it. But a lot of people love it. But it's the opposite of this in that it's a similar sort of situation and a similar use of like the internet and questioning our connectivity and who we can trust. That is the like exploitative action murder mystery Mm. plot. You know, Mm. Mm -hmm. this is the one that says that impulse to like, you know, think of the internet or think of sleuthing on the internet as like a, um, as a mystery, exciting, actiony, Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew thing <laughs> is like the problem. You know, this book yeah. says we need to stop thinking of those situations as, as something that you can solve with, you know, you and your laptop and start thinking of it more about how can we connect with human beings before we even get to that disconnected state. <laughs> yeah. Like this, this captures, this <laughs> captures so well, this has happened to me many times. Um, Cause email is a huge part of my life. Like, have you guys ever been just going around your ordinary day and you look at your computer or your phone and you get some email that just like is horrible in some way, like a huge rejection or someone yelling at you and you feel this like, gut punch but you're still just in your regular life and it's the most surreal (laughs) feeling because you're not like arguing with a human being it's like one second i was sitting here feeling normal and now i'm like slammed with this emotion right and this book shows that both in the radio and the email where you're just sitting there at your fucking work computer and then somebody's like your whole life has changed (laughs) (laughs) but you're still fucking sitting there surrounded by your dumb co-workers and you just have to get through your hour day life and it's a horrible feeling i mean it's the most it gives me some of the most existential dread i ever feel is when you know you have some like emotional thing happening through a screen but you're not with the person. Right. Well, and there's a funny thing that this book does, which is it actually touches on that need for us to go out and express our stories and sort of share our pain because they actually actually show a moth-like storytelling series in the middle of the book where Sabrina's (laughs) Sabrina's sister gets up to tell the story of, oh, like I went and saw my sister and we were talking about my mom's cat and then she was murdered. Like she tells this moth story and people are just like, you know, sitting there in their jackets and, you know, lightly clapping to the story. But like that's become, that's become another part of the grief process, right? Like as much as, um, as much as anything else, if you're a social person, like, 
someone might say to you, oh, my God, that terrible thing that happened. You should do the local storytelling series and tell everyone about it. And so and so all of a sudden, like this this paralyzing grief that you have about something now becomes a, a thing where people are like, hey, Tuesday night, do you want to hear about paralyzing grief down at CT Improv? You know, they're doing a, they're doing a moth <laughs> show, you know? <laughs> that, that does point yeah. to something that, that I was thinking about reading this book and then doing this book on a podcast is that um, it, it's, I think, I, to be positive for a second about technology and where we're at, it is interesting that podcasts and radio shows have become so popular in this era in a way that I don't think anybody really predicted, say, in the mm -hmm. early aughts or like the late 90s. Um, and I think that there's something to that. I think there's something to... Like the fact that people like to listen to us and that we like to do this and talk is right. that it, there's something about the human voice that's better than a website or mm -hmm. even just reading text on a screen. And the fact that people, I mean, I love podcasts and I love listening to audiobooks for this very reason is that because it, 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 there's something human to that, that connection that, um, that I crave, you mm -hmm. know, that, that obviously our time spent on email or Facebook is not satisfying. Like that kind of connectivity is not the same as the sort of in your ear, sitting around talking, you know, listening to a human voice. That presence is still, we crave that. We need mm -hmm. that because uh, we're not getting it in our daily lives that much. We're not talking to each other that much. Did, did I tell you guys? I don't think I told you guys this. Um, one of our fans on Twitter a couple of weeks ago said, Hey, would you call and wish my friend um, a Merry Christmas? And I was like, yeah, send me her number. I'll call and wish your friend a Merry Christmas. And so this one of our listeners was like, you're kidding me. You do this? I was like, yeah, give me your number. I'll, I'll call her. And so she gives the number, and I call this young woman at her job. And I left a message. Hey, this is Todd Goldberg from Literary Disco, your friend. Wanted me to wish you a Merry Christmas. So, you know, Merry Christmas. And then she called, she called me back like three seconds later. We had a lovely like 15 minute conversation where it sounded That's like, so nice. it was sounded like we knew each other because it turns out she's heard us talking about my life at least for, you know, 150 <laughs> hours. So listeners, Todd phone number, Todd phone number is. <laughs> but we had this, we had this lovely conversation and she was really thankful about um, how, you know, the three of us, you know, talk about our lives, not just talk about books, but, you know, talk about whatever good things or bad things or frailties are happening to us and about how literature affects us. And we hung up the phone and I was like, well, that was one of the more gratifying phone conversations I've had in the last awesome. year. Because Lifetime. normally, yeah, because <laughs> normally I just call someone and I'm like, where's my fucking pizza? Or, <laughs> you know, <laughs> why don't you have the thing that I need? Um, yeah. So, and listeners, we're not going to do it every day, but I was feeling, I was feeling kind on that particular day. Um, but, but I think it's part of what you're talking about, Ryder, which is that this, the sound of the human voice in this time and, and place in our lives where everything's coming at us through technology and, and everything is impersonalized to create rage to actually talk to someone about the things that you care about all of a sudden means something different. And you see that in this book. Like when these people, even when these people have mundane conversations about uh, pizza or sandwiches or slankets or whatever, it sort of has the same calming effect of petting a dog when you have anxiety, you know, where all of a sudden you just feel a little bit better. Great. Yeah. All right. So that was Sabrina by Nick Dernasso, which I think I'm pronouncing correctly. 
D-R-N-A-S-O. So good. Everyone, you should, so good. You should buy one of, the, one of the best books of 2018 for sure. One of the best graphic novels I've ever read, without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah, it's art. It's a piece of art. It's a piece of art. Yes, mm -hmm. it absolutely is. Uh, and hey, if we don't talk to you guys before the holidays, you you have a happy whatever it is you celebrate. Just enjoy the end of the year. And the end of times. <laughs> okay. <laughs> More books on paranoia for you. <laughs>